Very good. And we do have, if you are K through 5th, you're welcome to go to our children's service. But it's good to be together this morning. And I want to give you a, an example as we begin our, our sermon this morning on the topic of service. I want you to imagine that you and I run into each other at some point this week, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out a little pill. And I say, take this. Unless you're having a really bad day, you're probably not going to do so. You're going to look at me like I'm crazy. What are you doing? I don't want any part of that. Matter of fact, the next time you see me, you may intentionally avoid me. Example number two. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup. The doctor looks at you. He assesses you. He says, you need to have a seat. He explains how, how your body, your condition matches, and you have all the exact symptoms of this unbelievably rare disease that will be fatal to you. In just a short matter of time, you will breathe your last breath, and you will die. Your mind begins to race about what that means for your life your family and your friends and, and your future that you imagine to be much longer. He says, but it was extremely costly. But I have a pill that will cure you. He goes to his drawer behind you and he pulls the pill out and he says, it's the only one that will do it. Would you like it? Immediately, you would take the pill with a great spirit of gratitude and thankfulness. And you would take it and you would be cured. And, and you ask the doctor, oh, can, I, can I pay for this? He says, this is far too expensive. You can never pay for this. It costs me far too much. You'd say, well, is there anything that I can do for you? Is there anything that I can do to, that, to serve you that you need? He says, I, I have everything. I, I don't need anything but I do like chocolate cake. And you say, that's incredible. I don't know, I don't know how to make a chocolate cake, but, but listen, uh, can I come tomorrow morning and bring you a chocolate cake? Even if you had never baked a cake in your life, you'd be researching diligently. You would go and you'd buy all the finest ingredients possible. You would make the greatest cake you could possibly make, even if it took you multiple, multiple, multiple attempts. And you would come back that morning and you would, you would serve that doctor the cake. And you'd watch him as he took this piece, even though you had no interest in baking, this opportunity to serve him. You'd take the piece of that cake and you'd watch him eat it and you'd watch him smile. And he says, that's good. Thank you. Can you make me another cake tomorrow? And you say, yes, sir, I can. Yes, sir, I can. See, the, the only reasonable response to realizing when your debt, when your serious condition has been taken care of, is a lifestyle of service. The only reasonable response in your life realizing the significance of your situation is a lifestyle of service. Now many people, if you're like me, you grew up hearing a lot about Jesus, Christmas and Easter and things like that, and you treated it very possibly, even if you grew up going to church 
Like the first example I gave of me just offering you a pill. That's great, but I'm not that interested. But when you understand the true significance of your situation, that that you and I on our own, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, regardless of your 40 time, all of us are, are woefully in trouble before a just and holy God. We're all in a grave situation, and yet there is hope to the hopeless. And His name is Jesus. He lived the sinless life we could not live, or nor do we desire to live, and He would lay His life down on the cross as a make-right sacrifice for sinners like you and I from all nationalities, all backgrounds, and all ways of life. And He is our hope. He defeated death, and He rose again from the grave. And our call in life then is those that have turned from self and sin, entrusted in this Jesus as a life of humble service. See, it marks our life. It becomes our primary identity marker. And we looked last week, if you're new with us this morning, and this is week four of this five-week series of Nature and Nurture, that those that have trusted Christ, they become disciples. They become followers of Jesus. And as a church who believes that for the glory of God, we're called to be making disciples of Jesus Christ, that we are a people who are marked by the Word, a devotion to the Word of God. That our worship that we gather in will be gospel-centered. And and that ultimately, as we looked at last week, Isaiah, a man who goes from this situation of standing before God, and his confession is this, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. He moves from a man of woe to a man of here I am, God send me. He moves from peril to purpose. He moves from hopelessness to hope. Because of what God does for him, he meets his need. He takes care of his sinfulness and his guilt and his shame. This morning, we're going to parachute into 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you'll see a pew Bible right in front of you. I encourage you to follow along with us this morning as we discuss what does it mean to live a life of sacrificial service. And what we're going to get in this text is something I believe fundamentally applicable to every area of our life, but particularly the area of service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to be in verses 14 through 21. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. And in this text that we're parachuting, I want to give us some information so you know about Corinthians. Our normal practice will be to walk through books of the Bible, but as we go through this series, I do want to to honor the text, certainly, but these are particular passages that replicate word, worship, service, and next week we'll be looking at family as we notice Jesus on the cross. That's going to be a very exciting sermon on family. I encourage you to come and be a part of that as we look at that incredible text. But in this text of 1 Corinthians, let me give you some background. The church at Corinth, the Christians that are living in this area of Corinth, they have a lot of dysfunctions. They have all kinds of problems. And so he begins by addressing them in chapter 1, and they're arguing over who baptized whom. So they're judging each other based upon who, who, who baptized, basically who was the cooler person that baptized them. And it's actually causing divisions in the church. And then he goes on to chapter 3, and he begins speaking about the fact that they're so immature in the faith. These are men and women. These aren't like just young, young people. These are, these are men and women. He says, y'all are so immature that you should be eating the meat of the Word, but here you are, you're you're still needing the milk. Then we go into chapter 4, and as a parent who loves a child and wants good for them, 
He begins this process, this four-step process of modeling them for a life of service. And it involves these things. Teaching that assumes a desire to listen. Step two, modeling what it looks like that assumes a desire to watch what's taking place. Thirdly, there's this deployment that takes place. So, so you heard me say it, you watched me do it, now you do this. So there's an assumption there that the person is willing to do so. And then, and then fourthly, and here's where we usually miss it. We usually try to make this a three-step process in our Christian faith and we miss the fourth one. It's this, this fourth element of assessment that, decide, that, that ultimately assumes a willingness for accountability. So in this text, he walks through these four elements As a parent loves a child, desiring them to grow in the faith, so too Paul loves the church and he desires them to grow up in their ability and attitude of service. And right after this, by the way, his his correction doesn't stop there. If you haven't read the book of 1 Corinthians, I encourage you, spend some time doing so. But it is a PG-13 book, okay? It's it's not for the faint of heart. Because what he does after this is you have in chapter 5, he's addressing a young man in the congregation that's having relations with his mother-in-law. And the church is silent about it. So he has this idea of, wait a minute, you had no problem correcting and arguing over who baptized whom. But you're silent when it comes to this other serious issue. He's speaking to them firmly, but he's speaking to them because he loves them and desires them to embrace a life of servant leadership as servants of Christ. So much so that Charles Spurgeon would say, before we read this text, he would say, if your king in heaven has called you to be a servant, why stoop so low to try to become a king on this earth? If we understand the gospel, we will understand that we are to be a people of service in all that we do. So let's begin first and foremost looking at the first of those four-part cycle that mature disciples of Jesus Christ are servant leaders who develop through a continuous process of first and foremost teaching that assumes our willingness to listen. Verse 14. It reads as this. He says, I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but rather to admonish you as my beloved children. So why does he write this? Why is he speaking these harsh truths to them? Not to make them ashamed. That's not his goal. He writes it because he loves them. Parents don't discipline their children for fun. But they do so because they love them. Coaches don't correct their players for fun. They do it because they love them. They admonish them. This desire of correcting them in their way of life, whether it's a wrong attitude or a wrong action, it flows from a motive of responsibility over the other. I want to speak very clearly to this as we walk through this text. This text, part of us, will make your skin crawl. Because we live in a world, and we even live in a Christian culture of individualism. Where we're tempted to treat the church like we do a grocery store. I like this stuff, I like what they offer here, I like what they offer here, but you stay in your aisle, I'll stay in mine. It's a lot like a club sometimes, can't it be? But what Christianity calls us to, the call of Christ and the call of being a part of the family of God, is that I am accountable to you. And you are accountable to me. So he begins by teaching this word and says, I'm telling you this harsh truth not to shame you, 
I don't, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. And this is a normative practice of Paul. I'll, I'll give you the reference. You can write it down. I won't give you time to look there. But 2 Corinthians 2.4, he reiterates this. He says, for I wrote to you, the next letter, or maybe the letter after that, but he says, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. When I played football in high school, my football coach would tell us, don't be afraid when I yell at you. Be afraid when I stop yelling at you, when I stop correcting you. And there's this understanding of correction here that Paul has. He says, because I love you, I don't desire to just make you feel bad. I don't desire to bring you shame. I desire to see your life like that of Christ, embracing a life of service. This is actually a consistent theme in the Christian walk. So again, let me say this very clearly. There is a place for shame in the Christian church. There is a, a place of relational shame. Let me read two other sp statements where this takes place. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15. He says, If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. In verse 15, Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And again, in our entrusted series we went through in May and June, Titus chapter 2, verse 7 through 8 says, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Have nothing evil to say, so that they may have nothing evil to say about us. He speaks these things, these harsh truths, because he loves them. And the idea, very practically, as he gives them this teaching, is that out of a family love for them, out of a warning for them, they might change and ad adapt their lifestyle to something that will, will be honoring. Sarah and I had the opportunity yesterday to walk up to the football field and watch your all's practice. It was a great time. But there was some admonishing that was taking place. Right? You know it. Some of you are going to have flashbacks now. But it was great. It was such an honor to be able to see there. And our son was glued to your all's action. He was just mesmerized. So thank you for the free child care. I appreciate that. But harsh truths are given out of a love for another person. And this teaching that he gives them from the very, very beginning is not done to offend them, but it's done because he loves them. Because the idea is this. A short amount of discomfort now out of a love for another person is worth a payoff later on for their own good. A parent doesn't rebuke their child because they want them to be angry at them, but a parent's trying to protect a child from long-term hurt and pain. The same picture is for us. It's teaching that assumes our desire to listen. Now listen to this. If you are a teacher like I am, you can make the mistake when we come to the Word of God to say, ooh, this would be really good for so-and-so to hear. Have you ever done that? You ever sat in a service and thought, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this? We can make that mistake all the time. And what we do, though, is we make the mistake of we only we can control our hearts that we have of developing hearts that desire to listen. We can't make someone else listen. But we can cultivate hearts that desire to listen to the Word of God. And that's exactly what we want in all areas of our life. Control ourselves and what we choose to take into our minds. Not to immediately bounce and say, this is good for somebody else, but to say, Lord, this is good for me. So first, we begin this process. It's teaching that assumes our willingness to listen. And secondly, it's modeling that assumes our willingness to watch. 
modeling that assumes our willingness to wash. Look at verse 15 and 16. He says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That means good news. Good news of Christ. I urge you then, be imitators of me. Now the ESV takes some, some liberties here and it tells us to translate this as countless guides. Literally though, the New King James says exactly literally what it is. He says, though you have 10,000 instructors, you got 10,000 teachers telling you how it should all go. You got counsel coming at you from everywhere. How much more so in our lives? By the way, I got Siri turned off. Good, okay, good. I, I spoke about Assyria last week, and then Siri chimed in and started speaking to me in the middle of the sermon. It was terrible. Figured that out, did some research. But we live in a world filled with countless guides. It's no longer through a conversation. See, when, when you see a preacher up here, you immediately can put your guard up. But you have preachers coming to you every day, every single minute. Your children do, you do, we all do. It's a nonstop wealth of guides trying to speak into your life. And what Paul says out of a love for the church, he says, listen, you all have 10,000 guides. And if you look at your immaturity, you look at your life, you need a new teacher. And by the way, I will be your teacher. I will be your teacher. You see what he says? He says, I urge you, verse 16 then, be imitators of me. Paul doesn't just say your life is going terrible, get better. Paul says, model your life after me. At first, that sounds arrogant. But it's actually a statement of meaningful love. Because it takes ownership for them. I want you to put your finger and mark this page, and then I want you to flip back in your Bible a little further to James. Go to the book of James. Because Paul does, in a, in a, in a discipleship sense, he does what the physical sense of James is talking about here in James chapter 2. In James chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. He takes ownership for them. He sees their needs. So this, this poor church is struggling with an unbelievable amount of maturity issues. And he speaks into their life and says, listen, you stop, stop trying to figure your life out on your own. Stop trying to listen to these poor guides in your life, these poor models. Instead, you're mine. He loves them. He speaks to them in a fatherly, loving sense. In every one of Paul's letters, with the exception of Romans, he refers to the church as children, as his babies. He has ownership over their lives. He cares for them deeply. And out of that, he fulfills, I think, what we see in a, in a very literal and, and pure sense of, of a spiritual sense of James chapter 2, verse 15 through 16. Now, now, as we read this, remember, James is dealing with what... If you claim to be a Christian, what ought it look like relationally? Is there some kind of relational, practical fruit that's coming out of your life? Look at verse 15 through 16, James says. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, the, the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17, So also faith by itself, it, 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 it does not have works, it is dead. What Paul does for the believers who are wrestling with weakness and immaturity, he doesn't just say, y'all do better. I want you to go and grow up in the faith. Just grow up. He doesn't do that. 
Instead, he takes ownership and investment in their lives and says, no, no, no. You all model your life after me. Model your life after me. It's modeling that assumes a desire to watch. It's modeling that assumes a desire to watch. You and I are called to, to we're, we are all models. You realize that? Every one of us is modeling the Christian faith. If you claim to be of Christ, we are modeling the Christian faith every single day. The question is, what kind of models are we? And that doesn't mean we're perfect, but here's where it comes in. When you and I, as Christians who have been adopted by faith alone in Christ alone, when we stumble, we have the opportunity to model for the world what humility looks like. We have the opportunity to model what it means to have our identity and security placed in the finished work of Christ. As we humble ourselves, we show our bellies, not literally, but we turn ourselves upside down and say, forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my God. Will you forgive me? There are no perfect models on this earth. But even when we fall, we have our worth and our identity in Christ crucified, our hope of glory. There's hope as models of Christ. Who are you modeling your life after? after? So how practically can you help to model for our body how to walk in service? Parents, I encourage you, find a place to serve. Matter of fact, when you leave the foyer, if you go to the left, you'll see a number of our ministry cards. If you go to the right, out the doors, you'll see a number of our missionary cards. But one of the practical examples I like to give to, to parents is let your child see you serve. Serve with them. Set your alarm 15, 20 minutes earlier than you normally would. Come to church and intentionally just with the idea of I want to help serve people. Because people are watching us all the time. So, so, so students, if you have a roommate, if you have a, a teammate, they're looking at your life. Let them see that your faith is costly. <clears throat> and one of the most meaningful questions you can ever ask somebody you want a conversation starter? Here it is. This is for all of us. Ask somebody this question. You know I'm a Christian, right? Can I ask you a question? Do you think I look like a Christian and how I live? Ask a friend, ask a coworker, ask a teammate, ask somebody that question. And they'll tell you how you're modeling it. They'll tell you. And then you have a, a conversation point for going forward. So if they say, you know, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't even know you were a Christian. What an opportunity for a first step in a conversation to go forward. Live a life of service. May we model what God calls us to model. So teaching, modeling, and thirdly, deployment that assumes our willingness to do. Deployment that assumes our willingness to do. Verse 17. Paul says, that is why I sent you Timothy. Remember, he mentored Timothy. As a matter of fact, in just a few after this series, we're going to walk through the book of 2 Timothy this fall. He says, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So Paul is not, possibly he won't be able to make it to Corinth, but he sends the next best thing. He sends Timothy, who has observed how he's lived his life, and he's deployed Timothy to go into the church at Corinth. He says, listen, I can't be there right now, but Timothy's there. So model your life after how you see Timothy live. And this is the same message. You see what he said at the end there of that verse, verse 17? 
He says, as I teach them everywhere in every church. So he says, I love you all. I love you, church in Corinth. I love you. And I sent Timothy so you can watch him how he lives his life. But the same message I've taught you of a life of repentance, that's a turning of mind and a, and a changing of mind to, to, towards Christ, the same message I've taught you is the same message I've taught every church. And you seem to be struggling particularly with this message. And so the problem isn't a content issue. The problem is a user error issue. You know what I'm saying? He's having a very honest and frank conversation. There's, there's this, this sense that he calls them to do what the faith calls them to do because they're not doing it. But in order to jumpstart them, he deploys Timothy. He sends out Timothy to live among them, to, to minister to them, to teach them, to train them, to model for them the faith. So that they would also deploy and live out the faith in their lives. And what would spiderweb across the world would come to the United States as she would eventually come into existence, would come to Nacogdoches, Texas. And here we are on a Sunday-by-Sunday Sunday basis studying the Word, gathering for worship, and being called every week to be deployed out to do the Word. We can have the greatest of teachers like Paul. We can have the greatest models of the faith like Timothy. But if you and I don't come honestly and openly to the Word of God and say, I am willing to stop doing so-and-so, and I'm willing to start doing so-and-so for your glory, change will not take place in our lives. I, am called to, I should be much more mature in Christ one year than I am today. The Lord is continuing this process of discipleship and growth, but if I don't have a willingness to, be, to change my, my thought pattern or to change my habits to do, that will become spiritually and functionally bitter. And I will become a spiritual know-it-all, but a do-little. The call to Christ is a call every week to say, Lord, I will edit this relationship for you. I will edit my lifestyle for you. What do you want I'm here to serve you. I'm here to bake the cake every morning for you. For your good and your glory to please you. What do you want me to bake for you today? Oh, that relationship? That, that habit? Okay. I'm going to bake that cake for you. At the end of the day, you say, Lord, thank you for letting me bake that cake for you. Would you work in me so I can bake better tomorrow? Thank you that you're pleased in me because of Christ. Not even my baking skills. Our problem is a doing problem oftentimes. Not so much a content problem. Think about this. The same sermon you're hearing over here right now, an application is going to be similar to what the children are hearing over there. Like none of us come to, come to church and hear Matthew 18 and hear, wait, you mean I'm, wait a minute, hold on. Are you telling me I'm supposed to forgive? Are you telling me Jesus wants me to forgive? I did not know that. I've attended church my whole life. I had no idea that Jesus would want me to forgive somebody. We know that, right? We know we're called to forgive. But how do you actually apply that out in your life? That's the work of the Spirit in our life. It's a daily by daily decision to do the Word. And this is why we need each other. This is why I encourage you. You'll hear more and more about our small groups in September. September 12th will really be firing up again. 
What an opportunity to be able to gather together to live and to do the Word of God. To see it modeled, but to say every week, here we're deploying ourselves very intensely. Not just on Sunday morning, but also through the week with a group of others that know our names, that know our faces, that know our struggles. As we've walked through this series, we've discussed that we are a people that are devoted to the Word. As we're called to make disciples, that we are a people of gospel-centered worship. We are a people that are building ourselves around sacrificial service. And in that process, we've looked at of service, teaching that requires listening. Modeling that requires watching. Deploying that requires doing. And now here comes the hardest part. Number four. Assessment that requires our desire for accountability in advancing the kingdom of God. Assessment that assumes our desire for accountability in advancing the kingdom of God. Here it is, verse 18 through 21. Look at this. He says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So let's put their money where their mouth is. Verse 20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? So for discipline or with, a love, with, or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Now when you and I were kids, very possibly, your parent might have given you chores to do when you left the house. You ever have that happen? They left the house. Maybe they went on vacation and they gave you chores to do. Now when they were coming home, you had one of two thoughts. If you did the chores, you were thinking, great, sounds good. Looking forward to them coming. But if you didn't do the chores, how'd you respond? Uh-oh. They're coming. One, the same word. One says, hey, they're coming. The other one says, they're coming. When you were at school and you, and you had a substitute teacher, if you were a kind, sweet student, you were looking forward to the teacher coming back. But if you were crazy, you thought, the teacher's coming back. Well, Paul tells the church, he says, listen, there's some people among you in the congregation and the body that are acting like I'm not coming back. When I come back, you get to decide how I come back. Do I come back to clean house and deal with their hot air? Or do I get to come back with gentleness because you've already cleaned it up? And that's where the bullet hits the bone because listen to this. In 1 Corinthians 16.13, there's a text that most men's ministries use. 1 Corinthians 16.13, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Why does Paul tell the church, act like men, man up? It's because the whole previous letter has listed about a half dozen dysfunctions that's going to require man-up conversations of the church out of love saying, no, 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 listen, because I love you, that teaching can't happen any longer. Because I love you, this action can't keep happening. We love you, we're here for you, we're doing it in love, but we've got to have hard conversations. Assessment in our life. You and I are called together to be accountable one for another. That my life is your business. That's not a very popular saying, is it, in our culture? 
You don't hear, you, what do we hear the opposite? Get out of my business. But the Christian call as people that have been adopted by faith through Christ alone, the call is this, that my life is now your responsibility. Surprise. So when my teaching starts to go away from the Bible, you're called to correct me. When my lifestyle begins to drift from the calling of the way God calls a, a man to live, you're supposed to be courageous enough to correct me. And I to you as well. That commitment is what makes relationships strong. I want you to imagine this. Imagine a young couple comes up to you. Just go with me here. Imagine a couple that's been dating for many years comes up to you. They get engaged and they say, listen, I want your advice. We'd like for you to do our pre-marriage counseling for us. I know this may be weird. You're thinking, well, what? what? But go with me here. This young man and young woman come up to you and say, would you do our pre-marriage counseling for us? But here's the deal. We don't want any accountability based on how we live from you and not even each other. So what do you say? Would you be comfortable with that? Of course not. Because relationships that mean anything in life require accountability and commitment. Any athletic team that's going to be successful requires accountability and commitment. The Scripture says that the difference between the fool and the wise person is the fool despises correction, but, but the wise person embraces correction. When you and I buck up under accountability or the thought of accountability in our lives, we live as fools even when we claim Christ. You see why the fourth one is difficult? You see why the fourth one of accountability is difficult? Because it gets my business becomes your business, and your business, because I love you, becomes my business. But that's what makes meaningful relationships. I've never been to a wedding and heard a couple exchange vows and then at the end say, just joking. Just joking. Meaningful relationships are based upon commitment that require accountability. This is our call because we love one another and we care for one another. This is our lives. We owe one another the debt of stirring one another up to love and good deeds to the glory of God. This leads us to our next steps. You'll see this on the front of our bulletin in the future. Again, Word Worship Service family, you'll see an explanation of our central mission and vision statement as a church. But here it is for service. Our next steps is this, that we are committed to stirring one another up towards love and good deeds. That we ask every member to consider serving others in two ways. First, by personally serving in the ministry of Grace Bible Church. So we think that's a healthy practice. of Here's a, here's a healthy avenue for you to serve others. Find one, pray about it. Find a place to serve. Serve with your kids. Even serving those that are homebound, that can't make it, go and pray with them, with your family, encourage them. And second, by obeying the Holy Spirit's promptings to love our neighbor through showing and sharing the gospel message with them. Have you ever wondered why we call this time a worship service? You ever thought about it before? It's called a worship service. Why is it called a worship service? It's because the Word of God is being ministered to us. 
We're all sitting under its authority. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God. He speaks into our life. He shapes us. He convicts us in unique ways. He comforts us in unique ways. And He shapens us to the image of Christ as we go through a life of trials, of temptations, of failures and victories. But we go through this life together as a family in Christ. One people, one Spirit, one Lord, one baptism, one purpose, making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us before we sing and worship. Lord, you are so kind to us. You are so patient with us. God, we ask that your Spirit would move mightily in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that he would search the deeper elements of our lives. That you would reveal sin in our lives and you would convict us. God, that you would hold us accountable to the lives you call us to live. We know there is a deeper purpose in our lives. A purpose to serve you. We pray, God, you would give us wisdom in all things. Father, your love for us is unbelievably deep. That while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. That we were haters and runners against you, Father. You would, you would send your Son, Jesus Christ. That he would come and live a sinless life and he would make it possible that we could be adopted through faith in Christ alone. He is our hope and he is our worth. Help us to find our identity in the perfect man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. We love you. And we sing this time for you and to your glory. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said together. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?